interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Well, I'm glad to be back. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We talked about it as the meta-theology of the Bible, the thing that holds the Bible together. We started off this morning talking first about our place in this kingdom, that we have this role of being the people who are supposed to, or the, the creature that is supposed to bring about the will of God in heaven on earth. And we do that by making more and more and more and more and more images, and we do that by subduing the earth, having dominion over it. And then we ask the question, well, you know, that's, that's complex because of sin, so how is all of this progress or this process, not necessarily even progress, but process, how is it, how is it managed by God? And the answer to that was by covenants. Again, acting just like a king would act, um, God makes covenants with people. And through those covenants, he regulates or orders or administers this relationship and this role that we have in the world. And we looked at all that. You remember all that? There it is. We looked at that first off with Noah. And we noticed that in Noah in Genesis, um, we'll put that out here, Genesis 6 and 9 is where the covenant with Noah is. And we could call that the main focus of this covenant. And there are lots of other things that could be said is that God made a world that was stable for the human race so that this sinful, naturally inclined towards sin um, human race might have the opportunity to fail and stand up again and keep going and keep working toward the goal of bringing in the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Then we come to the next three big covenants, Abraham, Moses, and David. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Abraham, Moses, and David. Now, these three covenants have a number of things in common. The big thing they have in common is should stand out, obviously, to all of us, and that is Israel. Israel. These are covenants that are made with Israel. First, Abraham, the father of Israel. Then, Moses, the great lawgiver and deliverer of Israel from Egypt. And then, David, the great king of Israel. And before we go any further, then, we have to ask the question, what's up with Israel? I mean, why? I mean, the first covenant wasn't made with Israel. It was made with all of humanity in Noah. So why is it that all of a sudden, out of all the vast families of the world, God chooses one family and makes covenant with them? I mean, what about if most of you here are probably Gentiles, so what about the Gentile dogs? What about them? Why is it that God made covenant with these special people and then left the others to live under the covenant with Noah and if there was one with Adam, under the arrangement with Adam? Why is that the case? And um, the answer is, I think, really sort of simple in many ways. If you ask why God did this, ultimately you have to say for his glory, you know. But that doesn't help us much. Um, next step you can say, why did God do this, is because we don't know how God did this or why he did this. There's just a sense in which, ultimately, we can't have insight into things that God doesn't tell us about his motives. But I do think we can tell this much from what the Bible says. God chose Israel, as it were, as a stepping stone, as a starting point for bringing his kingdom to this world as it is in heaven. Uh, my wife and I throw international parties a lot at the seminary. We have lots of international students. And back in the old days, my wife used to try to call every single one of them on the phone. But the problem is, is that usually when you call them on the phone, you don't get the student. It's usually the men, so forgive me, women. But the male, who is usually pretty good in English, uh, is at school. And so my wife is calling around trying to invite the, the various families to come. And, you know, most of the people can't understand what she's saying. And they say, yes, 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 yes. And 
just like I do when I go to other countries like that. You never know what you're agreeing to. And they don't get the idea. They don't get the date. They don't get the time. And so nobody shows up because they can't understand. Okay. well, you know, um, there was a simple solution that she came up with, and that was to gather a small group of people that she called one representing each of the various groups of people there in the seminary. And then they were in charge of calling and extending the invitation to everybody else in their ethnic group. Does that make sense? So she picked a small group out to contact all the others. Now, God didn't have to do that, like my wife and I had to do that. But that was the way he chose to do it. Israel was chosen as a special people, but not for herself. It was for the human race. Out of all the nations, God says, Israel will be my firstborn. But all nations belong to me. And eventually, they will recognize that and come to me. But it will be through the service of, through the conduit of Israel. And so we find Abraham being the father of them all. The father of the people of Israel. And one of the things that we have to remember as we look at the book of Genesis, and Abraham's covenants basically appear in uh, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. One of the things we have to remember is that when God makes covenant with Abraham, and Moses is writing about this in the book of Genesis, he's writing about it for Israelites who had inherited this covenant. I mean, they were basing their lives on this covenant that God had said he would do certain things for them for certain purposes. And they were risking everything in the hopes that what he had said to these fathers back in these days, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, was actually coming true in the days of Moses. So what was God saying? It's amazing, really, when you think about all the various things that God said to Abraham and Most of us, when we think about Abraham, we think of Genesis chapter 12, where God calls him and tells him to go to the land that he will show him, and he'll make him a great nation, and his name will be great, and through through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And we're excited about that, and that's one of our favorite passages about Abraham's life. But the covenant passages, where the word covenant is actually used, um, are really chapters 15 and 17, and they're not as well known. And so we're going to take a look at those chapters because what happened with Abraham there is formative. It is foundational. It is at the center of Israel's relationship with God. And as you, as Christian people, have been now adopted into the family of Abraham, as you've become the children of Abraham through Christ, you now have adopted this covenant as well. This is not old stuff. This is your stuff. This is not an old relationship with God. This is your relationship with God. So what we learn from Abraham is of utter importance to you and me too. So let's start looking at Genesis 15. What a great chapter. I want to read some of it to you and just do a sort of walking commentary as we read this. And uh, we're going to see some very interesting parallels to the things we've said up to this point. Genesis 15.1 After this, the the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, you know, I think if God said that to me, I'd go, yay, that's great. I think you would too. Of course, I don't know what we'd do if we actually heard God say something like that and blow our minds. But, I mean, you would expect Abraham to say, wow, that's great. Way to go. I'm so pleased that this is going to be the case, that you're going to be my great reward. You're my shield. Um, But that's not what happens, verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. What's Abram's problem? Pardon me? Yeah, but what's 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 he not trusting God about? What's he upset about? Why does he feel disowned? Why does he feel... A lack of dignity. Why doesn't he just say, well, that's great, Lord. Multiplication. That's right. Abraham understood what you and I don't understand. And that is making images of God, both physically and spiritually. Remember that distinction, okay? So don't get messed up here. I'm not telling you if you don't have children, you're no good. 
but spiritual as well as physical, descendants of you, images of God, is at the heart of what it means to be a human being. Much less someone who's protected and shielded by God and given great rewards. What, well, what good is all this promise when I don't even have a child? It's a good question, Abram. We don't get it, but it was a good question. You know, you were made to fill the world up with images of God. If you're not doing it, it cuts at the heart of what you are as a human being. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. So, here's this famous verse that Paul loved, his favorite verse in the book of Genesis. So, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is how Paul establishes that the Old Testament is not against salvation by faith alone, but is in fact the foundation of belief in salvation by faith alone. It's an Old Testament doctrine, not a New Testament one. All right, so what's happening? Abram's wondering, you know, Lord, how are you going to give me children? I mean, I'm so old that it's obvious that Eliezer is going to be my heir. And I don't understand why I should feel blessed when I'm not multiplying and having the kinds of effects in the world that I was destined to have. I mean, if I'm your special person, what is up with the fact that I'm not having a child? And so God takes him outside, shows him the stars, and he says, you know, basically, if I can make this many stars, so many that you can't even count them, don't you think that I can give you a baby? And Abram looks up and basically he's convinced. He says, okay, I'll buy that. Wasn't really a big problem for Abraham, just like it wasn't a big problem for the Israelites who were reading this story firsthand. Because as they were reading it, following Moses, they were many. They were as numerous as the stars in the sky already. So it really wasn't even an issue for them. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah, we can believe it, just like Abraham did. We can believe it. And by the way, if you ever have doubts about the Christian faith, one thing you ought to do is just think about how it started off so small and insignificant and how great it is just in numbers. The fact is, is that yeah, God's done this. This is kind of a no-brainer if you think about it. So he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so you would think that the problems would be over, right? All questions would be settled, but they weren't. Look at verse 7. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now, those words should remind you, Israelites, following Moses, of something that God said to you. I won't, do you remember what it is? Do you see it? I am the Lord who brought you out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. All of a sudden, the ears of the Israelites are perking up. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's really not that hard to believe that God has made Abraham into this great number of people. Yeah, we can see that like the stars. We see it right here in front of us. But now God is saying to Abraham just what he said to us, which is our challenge in life. Our big challenge in life is, are we really going to take possession of this thing called the promised land? And now God is saying the same thing to Abram. He's saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of, not of Egypt, but out of Ur, to give you this land. And now their ears are ready to hear what else God is going to say. And not surprisingly, Abram has another problem. Verse 8. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Isn't that the question the Israelites were asking as they heard this story? You know, are we really going to be able to take this land? There are giants over there. Okay, so a fascinating problem here because we're not just dealing with multiplication and the challenge that it poses for the image of God, but what else are we dealing with now? Dominion. Dominion. By the way, in Genesis chapter 1, or yeah, Genesis chapter 2, I should say, when... Moses is describing the boundaries of Eden. He mentions rivers. You remember this? He mentions these four rivers. 
uh, two of them are the Tigris Euphrates and the other is the Pishon and the Gihon. And um, it's fascinating that in Genesis chapter 15, as we're going to see in just a moment, the boundaries of the land that's promised to Israel are the, basically the same boundaries that are described as the land of Eden. So what God is doing is, in the days of Moses, is he's taking Israel back to Eden. Because Eden was, as it were, it was Utah Beach for the kingdom of God. It was Omaha Beach for the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? Yeah, it was the beachhead, the beginning point of the great invasion of the world by the kingdom of God. And as it was in the beginning, it was being reiterated now in the days of Moses. And so God now is talking to Abraham. He says, I'm, I've given you this land. And Abraham says, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? And so a wonderful thing happens. Just absolutely astounding. Just astounding. Listen, it'll blow you away. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. Doesn't that blow your mind? I mean, isn't that just, wow, what else can you do, Lord, to give me confidence? Go tell me to, tell me to bring a bunch of animals over here. Three-year-olds, of course, and a dove and a young pigeon. That makes a lot of sense to us. It doesn't make a bit of sense to us unless you already know what's going on. But it made perfect sense to Abraham. He knew exactly what was going on. And thanks to recent research in the last century, we know what's going on now. In fact, if you read older commentaries that prior to this century, they kind of don't know what's happening here. But we know now, and I'm going to describe to you what's going on here, the background of what's going on here, and then we'll read the verses and you'll see that's precisely what's happening here. In the ancient world, many times when they would make covenants between one king and another, the great king and the lesser king, things like that, they would, they would do what we would do in the modern world, signing on the dotted line. You sort of put your name on the dotted line with, uh, with the penalties written right above where you sign your name. And the way they would do that would be by certain oaths that they would take and then ceremonies associated with those oaths. And basically the ceremonies meant this, that if you broke the covenant, if you violated the covenant, then you were to be cursed. That's what the, these oaths and these ceremonies would mean. It's a lot like what children do when they really want to convince you that they mean something. They used to say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Because what you're doing is you're saying, if I, if I break my word, if I'm lying to you, here's my heart. You can shoot me right here. You can even stick a needle in my eye if you want to. And that's, of course, to prove what? They're not lying. They're really going to do this. Now, sometimes adults say, if I'm lying, may, may lightning strike me. I'm told in Eastern Europe they often say, if I'm lying, may the earth open up and swallow me. Okay, this is a, this is a self-cursing, that if you violate your word, may something really bad happen to you. Well, let me tell you about the first one of these I ever read, the actual text that I ever read of a ceremony. It's a hilarious ceremony. There's these two kings that are making a covenant, and they, this is an Aramaic, and they stick wax figures of each other on the ends of sticks, Describes all this, okay? One king has the other king's figure, and the other king has the one king's figure, okay? So they're doing all this covenant making and things, and they start walking toward a big fire. And as they walk, they say these words back and forth to each other. If you break this covenant, may your nose melt from your face as the nose on this figure is melting. And the next one says, oh yeah? Well, may your legs melt off of your body if you break the covenant like I'm whacked, like the wax figure here is losing its legs. And on and on it goes. They get worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, they both throw each other's figures into the fire and they all burn up. And they say, may this happen to you. May this God and this God curse you and your children and your cows and your donkeys forever. That's the way they did things back in those days. It's a little more than, you know, you'll lose your... Um, Lose your interest on your CD that you take out early. But that's basically what it was. Self-malediction, self-curse. Okay. Well, one of those ceremonies, and you can find this ceremony in the, book of the, in the Bible, in Jeremiah and in Samuel as well. One of the ceremonies they used to do, as bad as it sounds for everyone that loves animals, is they would take animals and they would rip animals in half. I mean, they would literally just cut them and tear them up. And then they would put these pieces of the carcasses on either side of a path. And then the people, the parties making the covenant, 
would walk down the path between the meat. And what they would say to each other was, if I break my covenant, may I be torn to pieces just like this animal has been torn to pieces. You had my permission to cut me in half and to scatter my body. Pretty bad, huh? Pretty serious business. Well, that is the kind of ceremony that's about to take place here. And Abraham knew it. Listen to what happens. With, even without, with no instructions at all, listen to what he does. Beginning in verse 10. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in two, um, did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. This is to keep it pure and to keep it holy according to the right rituals. Now, listen to what happens, verse 12. Get the picture, don't you? The animals have been torn. They're laid opposite of each other. And of course, what's Abraham, according to the custom, what's he expecting to happen in the morning? What needs to happen the next day when they get ready to do the ceremony? He and God will walk down the pieces and they'll exchange self-curses, right? They'll both be saying, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And that's what he expects to happen. And... Um, it's no wonder what happens to him now because he falls asleep and he has a big nightmare. <laughs> he, I'm sure he's thinking to himself, I wish I just kept my mouth shut. Now I've got to go in here and make this oath to God that he can curse me and rip me to pieces if I don't take the land that he's promised me. Oh boy. Well, listen to what happens. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick, dreadful darkness came upon him. That's the nightmare. The dread of what's going to have to happen in the morning. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites, that's another word for Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. So God says, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. It's just going to take some time, about 400 years. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. A smoking pot and a blazing torch appear and pass between the pieces. Smoke and fire. Smoke and fire. You see, we already know what this is because you're reading this like Israelites, remember? He's just said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who brought you, Abraham, out of Ur. Now you've entered into this covenant and all of a sudden smoke and fire appears and passes right down the path between the meat. And where is that smoke and fire, you Israelites following Moses? Where is it? Yeah, Sinai, and where else is it? It's right there with you. It's just right outside, which is the same fire on Sinai. Yeah, it's the fire of God's presence. This is the glorious Shekinah presence of God, which, of course, was leading them somewhere. Where? To the promised land. So here is the presence of God appearing to Abraham, and the Israelites reading this know this is the case, and suddenly it becomes very clear what's going on. God walks down the path of self-cursing alone. In effect, God is saying this, Abraham, you can be sure that I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. You can be absolutely sure it's going to come to your descendants in 400 years. And by the way, that's your time, you Israelites, 400 years. And you can be sure because I am swearing an oath that if I do not do this, may I, God, be torn to pieces like these animals were torn to pieces. Now, what kind of confidence could that give you? Great confidence, because God cannot be torn to pieces like that. He is swearing to his own destruction that he will 
give Abraham and his descendants the land. You know what that tells you, don't you? It tells you that the process of multiplication and dominion, all of it, 100% is by the mercy and the grace and the activity of God. That he has guaranteed this and that he is the one that accomplishes it all. I mean, this is bottom line for what it means to be in the covenant with Abraham. And that is, you remember the old picture, that the divine king is being kind and merciful, showing himself to be the one who initiates and continues and brings to culmination the great covenant promise that Israel will possess the land. 100% by the grace of God. Now, to put that in Christian terms, how much of your salvation is by God's grace? Yeah, not 50-50. I can't believe it, but there are people out there that actually believe that it's basically 50-50. There are other people, that Christian people, who believe that God does 99.9% of the saving, but that last little tenth of a percent, you know, that, that last little tenth is it's you. It's your faith. I think even heard ministers say, it's as if there's this ten-rung ladder between you and God. And God in his mercy has come down nine rungs, but you have to go to the first one. That's not the gospel. That's not the covenant made with Abraham. The covenant made with Abraham was this. God comes all the way down the ladder. And he says, you can be sure because you are mine that you will possess the land and for us possess the earth. It will be yours or I will be torn to pieces. Great. That sounds wonderful. I mean, I like the idea of salvation by grace through faith. In fact, I read an article just recently by a skeptic who said, this is the greatest ploy evangelicals have ever pulled off anybody, and that is that they give everybody an excuse for their sins. You kind of get this free ride into heaven. You never have to do anything about your sins because they say it's all paid for by Jesus. And I say, yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly what we believe. It's all paid by Jesus. It's all by his grace. But do you know the problem with salvation by grace? It's a big problem with it. The big problem is, is that if he's going to do it all, He's going to do it in his own way and in his own time. I mean, 400 years, I never heard about that before. Abraham's thinking to himself, 400 years I've got to wait for this thing? You were talking yesterday like it was going to happen tomorrow. And now you're telling me 400 years? I'm not so sure I like all this. And so we find that um, Abraham becomes very impatient, chapter 16. I remember once we had a student, and in Florida, you know, lots of houses are stuccoed. You know the word stucco, do you use that up here? Okay, and it's kind of just a plaster on the outside. And so when you paint your house, you have to, the first thing you have to do is repair all the cracks that inevitably come in the stucco. Otherwise, the paint's all uneven and things like that. And they tend to expand and contract and become worse. So we had this student who was trying to be nice, and I really appreciate the effort. And he, um, he said, I'd like, I'd like to do something for you, Rich. If you'll buy the paint, I will, I'll paint your house. Great. <laughs> you know, great, wonderful. And uh, so we, he goes out and he buys the, the plaster that you fill in the cracks with. And it makes this sort of light brown tan house with these dark pieces or stripes of plaster all over it, cement all over it. It looks kind of like a gigantic spider web all over our house. And I come home that afternoon and I see this and I go, well, that's great. He started. And, you know, this, this will be wonderful once he gets it all done. It'll look really nice. Well, one week went past and he hadn't come back yet. And another week went past and he hadn't come back yet. A whole month went past and he hadn't come back yet. So I come home from a long weekend one time and I drive in sort of still hoping and expecting that it's all going to have been done that weekend. And it had not been touched. It was still covered with this gigantic spider web in a neighborhood where you don't do such things. Okay. And um, hmm. so I remember walking into the house really angry. And I said to my wife, when is he ever going to do this? When is he ever going to go in and paint this house? It looks terrible. And she looked at me and she said, how much are you paying him? I said, nothing. And she said, well, I don't think you have much to say about when he does it if you're not going to pay him anything. 
So the next day I went and paid him. And he got it done. It was amazing. Uh, you know, the fact is, is somebody's giving you a gift, you're going to have to just take it the way they want to give it to you. And I really think in some respects that's, that is one of our biggest problems as Christians. You see, because we are all inheriting the earth, whether you believe it or not. You really are already beginning to multiply and have dominion over the earth. It's what we call the blessings of God that you have in your life. And if God would just give those blessings even-handedly, there would be very few problems that we have with each other. You know, if, he, if everybody got the same amount of spiritual gifts and if everybody got the same amount of money and if everybody's children were just as good as everybody else's children, if everything was even Stephen here, we'd all feel pretty good about that. But the fact is, is that we are prone not to feel that way because we look around ourselves and we find that, hey, how come those people have the good kids and I got mine? You know, what is going on here? These Look at the house those people have. I work just as hard as they do. And we start thinking this way and we become extremely impatient and so we start pursuing the things that are going to be given to us one day, but we pursue them by the flesh. By our own efforts. By our own schemes. Which is exactly what Abraham does in Genesis 16. He makes the deal about Hagar. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 that Hagar, at that moment, Abraham had turned from the way of faith and he had turned to the way of the flesh. He had decided that the, what he was going to do was find his salvation, that is, his multiplication and dominion. He was going to find his salvation not by waiting on God and trusting in God's promise despite appearances, but he was going to get it in his own way. Isn't that one of your greatest temptations in life? To get the joys and the pleasures and the wonders of being the image of God that are rightly yours because you are in the Savior. But to get them in the ways that God says, don't you dare go after them that way. I mean, we as the image of God, are going to be filled with joy and happiness. But what do we do? We try to find our joy and our happiness in the flesh. We try to find our fulfillment in immoral relationships. We cheat financially. We rob people. We even rob the government sometimes, thinking that somehow by getting a little bit more, we'll be a little bit closer to what we really deserve to have as the people of God. And we will push people out of the way and we'll step on other Christians and we'll work this and we'll work that all in the flesh, just like Abraham was doing. Because when somebody else is giving you the gift, you have to learn to be patient and receive it as he gives it to you. Well, that's what Abraham does in chapter 16. And that's why chapter 17 exists. Remember I told you in this picture that Abraham's covenant is made in chapters 15 and 17. Not just 15, but 17 also. If, if we just had 15, we'd all say, yeah, way to go, that's great. Salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It's all God's work. But, you know, you can take that truth and it can become a twisted, perverted lie. And here's how it gets twisted and perverted. You take salvation by grace as license for living any way you just want to. It's all right. I'm saved by grace. I don't need to worry about the way I live. That doesn't make a bit of difference. Well, Abraham thought that way too. But listen to what God thought about it. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, now this is 13 years later, so these kinds of things don't happen immediately. Okay, Lots of times, remember I told you God is patient with his covenant people? This is an example of the patience here. But when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Walk before me and be blameless. What side of the covenant dynamics is that? Divine kindness. What's on the bottom? Do you remember? 
loyalty. Abram was always supposed to be loyal to God. This wasn't a new idea. He started the whole thing off by saying, go to the land I will show you. That was loyalty required of Abraham. But Abraham had forgotten the need to be loyal. And so God comes back and reminds him. And he says, walk before me and be blameless and I'll confirm my covenant with you. And listen to what happens in verse 3. Abram fell face down. That was good, Abram. Way to go. Okay, he, he knew he had blown it. He fell face down and, he, and God said to him, watch verse 4. Watch how many times God talks about himself. We're going to see a contrast in a minute. As for me, this is my covenant with you, Abram. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. So these are all the things that God says, I, 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 I will do it. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to do this for you. Sounds like chapter 15, doesn't it? I'm going to do all these things for you, Abram. But now here comes the spin. Verse 9. Then God said to Abram, because Abram had forgotten it, as for you, Abram, as for you, this is the human loyalty side, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Do you see what's happening here? God isn't adding something new. God is simply clarifying the fact that Abram should have known this all along. You have to remain loyal to me. As for you, you and your descendants must keep my covenant. And the Israelites hearing this are going, oh no, because we haven't been doing that. We like the idea of free grace, but we didn't like the idea of human loyalty. And as a result, we've gotten in trouble just like Abraham did. What is it that God tells us we have to do to keep covenant? Listen to what he says. This is my covenant with you, verse 10. You and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh, he will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Wow. You see this? (laughs) It's really remarkable. In chapter 15, God goes under the knife. Remember how those animals were cut in half? God, as it were, takes the knife and puts it up on his throat and says, Okay, Abram, if I break my promise to you, go ahead. But now what's happening? Who's going under the knife? Abraham is. And just as the foreskin is cut off and cast aside to die, this is symbolic of what will happen to the person who flagrantly violates the covenant being made with God here. He will be cut off and cast aside to die. So what's the saying? That salvation is by works? Oh, no, it's not saying that. We know that's not true. It's all by grace. But we are saying this, that if grace is operating in a person's life, If faith is saving faith in that person's life, that person won't be perfect, but that person will be loyal. That person will be attached. That person will be faithful. And that we as Christians, even we as Christians, when we think about who we are in Christ, it is not simply a free gift that's given to us, but we are told by Jesus many, many times that those who endure to the end will be saved. To him who overcomes, I give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To him who endures to the end. Now again, we're not even talking about things like 
losing your salvation. In this church, I don't think you believe that you can lose your... Do you believe that? Okay. You don't believe that you can lose your salvation. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about proof in the pudding. That's what we're talking about. Because your life in this box, in this covenant box right here, your life in covenant is a testing ground. That's what it is. It's a testing arena to see what you're really made of. Remember how God tested Abraham with Isaac to see what he was really was in his heart? Are you really loving me more than you love your son? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 that the Christian life, life in covenant with Christ, is a test to see whether you have saving faith or not. It's the way you prove what you're really made of. I wrote a letter to someone recently who had become involved in a very serious sin. And this person has, has since that time, over a period of a year, has repented of that sin, has really turned around, a wonderful turnaround, just a lovely thing that's happened. And I wrote to this woman and I said, you know, the proof of who you are deep inside is not whether you have committed a serious sin. That doesn't prove anything. That just proves you fell in Adam like everybody else. The proof of who you really are is what you do after you've been caught. You know, a lot of you are in sins you haven't been caught with yet. And I know that. You know that too. We won't look at each other. Okay? We've all got them in one way or another. Envy, pride, jealousy, lust, whatever it may be. Stealing, whatever. We've got them. The reality is that that doesn't prove what you are. What really proves what you are is what, what happens when it, when it comes out and you're faced with the reality of being confronted with God and you decide whether or not you're going to fall face down or not. Because you realize taking God's grace as a license for sin proves that you really don't have the seed of true religion in your heart. But the seed of true religion blossoms under the most adverse circumstances, when you face the fact that you have not been perfect, but that you want to be faithful. It's a two-sided thing, this covenant, you see. Very nicely balanced here with Abraham. Grace, 100%. But grace at work will produce the fruit of righteousness. There you have it. Israel needed to be that kind of people. A people who were, who were quite aware that nothing they had was of their own making, but purely of God's making. But they also needed to be a people who were faithful. And so, 400 years later, God fulfills the promise that he made to Abraham in this passage in the days of Moses. And God brings Israel out of Egypt in the days of Moses. And we discover that God makes another covenant with the people of Israel. And where does he make this covenant with the people of Israel? He makes it in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. Did anybody see what I did with the pen? I had it. It's gone. Exodus chapters 19 through 24. We'll find it. I just stuck it somewhere. Exodus 19 through 24 is where God made the covenant with Israel uh, under Moses. Got it. I knew it was in there somewhere. Exodus 19 through 24. Okay, now, this is the really nasty covenant in the Bible. Ugh, Moses. Ugh, who wants it? Yeah, well, man, if we could just, we'd all be better off if Moses had just never come down the pike. It would have been a lot sweeter and everything, we'd all be happier. That's what most Christians think today. What a lie. It smells like smoke to me. What a lie. Moses isn't your enemy, he's your friend. Remember when the three amigos stood together? <laughs> Tres amigos. You remember that movie? But the Bible has Tres amigos también. Okay, and who are they? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And they're standing there arm in arm. Moses isn't your enemy. Moses is your friend. And remember Jesus said, if they believed in Moses, they believe in me. And they don't believe in me because they didn't believe in Moses. This negative attitude that really is in some respects a sort of proto or uh, incipient um, anti-Semitism, this anti-Moses attitude that we have, we must get rid of that. Moses is your friend. He's your friend. 
Exodus 19 through 24, the people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai and God makes this great covenant with them. And they hear what he wants to do and he says, are you really sure? And they say, all the Lord has said we will do, we will obey. So Moses goes up and he gets the law and he takes the blood in the bowls and he sprinkles some on the altar and he sprinkles a lot of it on the people. And he says, are you really sure you want to do this? And they say, all the Lord has said we will do and we will obey. They're absolutely firmly in unison committed to the covenant that they were making there that day. And then God gives them his law. A law that we often think of as a curse, but it's no curse at all. It was sin that turned the holy law into curse. Romans chapter 7. That which was intended for life, Paul says, the law, that which was intended for life became death because sin took opportunity through the law. And sin was dead until the law came and suddenly sin popped its head up and it's all turning sour. But the law is good and the law is holy, he says in Romans 7. But I'm a sinner and that's what makes it all so bad. You see, God wasn't doing a dirty thing to us, a, a bad trick on us when he gave us the law of, through Moses. He was doing a good thing for us. You know, we live in a day where people think of Moses and they think about morality in very relativistic, sort of arbitrary terms. I mean, even Christians will sort of baptize that and we'll think to ourselves, you know, what God did was this. He was up in heaven one day and he decided, you know, it's Moses is down there, isn't he? Yeah, Moses is down there. So I think it's about time to give some laws to these people. So we've got to figure out what laws we're going to give them. So God sits in the heavenly council and he flips a coin. And he says, you know, should we make them uh, okay to steal or not okay to steal? Well, heads is okay, tails is not okay. And he flips the coin and tails, write that one down, would you? It's not okay to steal. Heads or tails, uh, shall we let them commit adultery? Um, heads, um, they can't do it. Just let them know that one too. It's as if we think these laws were arbitrary, that God made arbitrary laws, just sort of popped out of his head one day. But it's not true. The laws that God gave through Moses were designed for Israel's good, and they're designed for your good too. They bring you to Christ because you're a failure. You can't keep them. But even once you come to Christ, they are your guide. They are your moral map. I grew up uh, in a neighborhood with older kids in my neighborhood. And one of the things they used to do was they used to race model cars down my driveway. And um, I was about three years younger than most of them. And I never had my own model car. I had this big old metal truck. And they would always laugh at me. So I remember the first time I had the opportunity to go out and save some money and buy a model car kit and put it together. And I put it all together. And I got out, got up really early the next morning, went out to the driveway to test run before all the older kids got there. And I gave it a little push down the driveway and it didn't move. I pushed it harder. It didn't move. The glue had seeped down onto the wheels and they were locked solid. Oh, man, it was terrible. And I remember so clearly running into the kitchen with my mother in there saying, Mom, 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 my car won't roll, my car won't roll. And <laughs> she looked at me and she said, Well, did you follow the instructions? And I like, I don't need to know the instructions. I know how to put cars together. It was obvious how to put a car together. And then she said, Well, maybe the manufacturer knows how to put the car together a little bit better than you do. I couldn't admit it at the time, but she was right. I was the kind of kid that would always have the messiest interior on those little models because I would always end up having to paint the interior through the driver's window. <laughs> I mean, I never figured out that you should paint the interior before you glue it together. Everybody else's looked really cool. Mine was just a big mess. Uh, I, <laughs> I think my mother is right. I mean, I can tell you that now when I learn software programs, you know, I'm, I'm just experimenting the whole time. And then somebody comes in having read the book and I just roll my eyes and go, yeah, you weakling. Um, you give in. You know. But my mother was right. The manufacturer knows how to make the car roll better than I did. And the same is true for the world and the one who made the world. God didn't give these laws arbitrarily. He made the world in a certain way. And do you remember I told you about the Egyptian concept of ma'at, the wisdom, the cosmic wisdom? The law is the wisdom of God. 
it tells you how the world was made to work. And if you want the wheels to spin in your life, if you want the car to go down the hill, if you want a fruitful and prosperous life, the answer is, it's by following the map, by following the instructions. It's no wonder our lives are messed up. Look at how we live. I have a friend that came from another country, came to this country on uh, a scholarship at a major university undergrad. And um, he walked into the dorm room there, the office at the dorm, and got a key. And he walked down the hall to his dorm room. And it wasn't bigger than a closet in most of your homes. And he, said, he looked at me 10 years later. He said, I just couldn't believe that this whole room was mine. I had my own sink. I had my own bed. I had my own chest of drawers. I had my own closet. It was all mine. Because he grew up with five brothers and sisters in a one-room apartment where his room was a little pallet that he rolled out and he made books around his pallet and dared his brothers and sisters to cross the line. That was his bedroom until he came to this country. Well, there he was in this little closet of a room. And he, in that closet made a life for himself to where now he is a major teacher in one of these major universities here in this country, just phenomenal person and very successful. Well, he was in that little closet doing that thing. He had turned it into a castle. But people just across the river, just across the river, the very same age as this young man, were in rooms a little bit larger than his. But they didn't consider them castles. They were in the state pen. It was death to them. So how is the law of God to you? Is it a straight jacket that you just hate and that you wish you could do otherwise? Or is it a castle? It all depends on your attitude, your angle, your perspective. Is God doing a dirty trick to you or is he telling you the way of life? Well, Israel received the law with enthusiasm at first, but it didn't take long before sin did its thing and they rebelled. God was patient and they rebelled. God was patient and they rebelled. And God was patient and they rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And finally, as time progressed, God decided it was time for something else to be added to the covenant community. The book of Judges puts it this way. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You heard that before in the book of Judges? It's repeated in the last chapters four times, in case we didn't get it the first time. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, we're talking about the tribes fighting each other. We're talking about people stealing from each other. We're talking about raping people to death. Right there in the Bible. It's the worst, some of the worst stories in the Bible. And the refrain is constantly in those last chapters of Judges. And in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And of course, the book is saying this over and over and over again to let us know Israel needed a king so that everyone would not do what was right in his own eyes, but would do things according to the law of God. And so God makes a covenant. And this time, not with Moses, not with Abraham, but with whom? David. And you find these, the covenant with David in two main places. Psalm 89 and Psalm 132 are really the best passages. And if you want to add to that, 2 Samuel 7, that's a nice one too. But basically, this is what goes on. God comes to David and he says, I'm going to choose you now. Out of all these special people who are called my special son, Israel, I'm going to choose you and your descendants to be the firstborn among the firstborn. I'm going to choose you to be the vice-regent among the vice-regents. The head of it all. You, David, and your family. Now, it's going to be different than it was with Saul because when Saul sinned against me, we learn in 2 Samuel, God says this, when Saul sinned against me, I threw him out. No more of Saul's descendants are to be king over Israel. No more of that. Not like that for you, David. You're to be king, and your descendants are to be the dynasty over the people of God now and 
forever. Never will it ever be different than that. And even when you sin and your sons sin, I'll punish them. I will, because remember, blessings and curses. I'll punish them, but I will never eliminate your family from kingship over my people and kingship over the world. And so you know how the story goes. David is made the king. He has Solomon, his son. And of course, as would be the case, they fail. And then their sons fail. God is patient. And they fail. God is patient. And they fail. God is patient. God is patient. God is patient. Until finally, God has had it up to here. Up to here. And he says, okay, this is so bad, I'm removing you from my holy land. You can't occupy Omaha Beach anymore. You're so bad. You're worse than the people that used to live here. You're out. And until you repent, you won't be brought back. And that, of course, is what the prophets of the Old Testament are all about, isn't it? Calling them to come back. Calling them to repent so they can come back to the land. And the promise is, for example, Amos chapter 9, 15 and following, the promise is that when they come back, there will be a great son of David, a magnificent son of David who will not fail and who will lead his people back into the land. And when the enemies attack, he will protect them and he will actually extend the kingdom of God to the ends of the world. Amos chapter 9. And that, of course, is why you are a Christian. It's because Jesus is the rightful heir of the throne of David. And when Jesus came, he was fulfilling the promise that was given to the pro- by the prophets so long ago that when the people of Israel are redeemed from exile, they will then extend the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles will serve the son of David just like the faithful of Israel will. And that's who you are. You are the Gentiles who serve the son of David. One of the great things that happens in the Bible is that the throne of David is exalted so high that his throne is actually believed to be up in heaven itself, right next to God the Father. And we learn that in the New Testament, this is exactly what happens. Jesus dies, Jesus resurrects, He ascends to the throne of his father David at the right hand of God the Father. And from there, he reigns forever. And because he reigns without any doubt over every single nation on the earth, extending his kingdom, we can be sure that the kingdom of God will succeed. Isn't that lovely? I mean, so very often we... Gentile-type Christians, those of you who are Gentiles, um, we often think that Jesus was a Gentile. He was an American, wasn't he? (laughs) And uh, the reality is, no, he wasn't. He was Jewish. He was the rightful heir of the throne of David. And you are in this game called Christianity because you are pledging your loyalty, your loyalty, to the son of David. You have been conquered by the king of Israel. And you have accepted him as your great prophet and as your priest and as your king. So now you're children of Abraham. And all the things that were promised to Abraham become yours too. And all the things that were said through Moses become dear to you. And all the things that were given to David become dear to you and become yours because you are in Christ. That's how God administers his kingdom and moved it from one tiny little spot on the earth to where now it has extended its fingers out into all of the world on its way to the point that it will not just be little fingers extending out, But one day, justice and righteousness will cover the world like the seas cover the earth. The 
whole world will be filled with the salvation of our God. And the ends of the earth will know that salvation. And that's who you are. Okay, I'm done. That's how the covenants work.